I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week, and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Welcome back. This is our last episode before our winter holiday. We will be back with you after the new year. We encourage you all to take some rest and rejuvenate during the holiday season. Come January, it will be crunch time. We have three cases for you all today, so a bit of a longer episode. It may seem a bit disorganized and disjointed, but just know that we did our best to pair these cases with content we are reviewing over the season. These cases happen to be some that did not fit into the rest of the content. Thus, here they are. Let's start with our first case, number 29, femoral acetabular impingement. A healthy 12-year-old female soccer goalie presented to a primary care physician with intermittent anterior hip and groin pain after her completed season. At first, she only had pain when kicking and punting with her dominant right leg. Now, She is having anterior hip and groin pain with all weight-bearing activities. She denies any signs and symptoms of fever, malaise, or rash. Her primary care physician referred her to a physical therapist with a diagnosis of hip flexor strain. Because her pain has not changed after two weeks of physical therapy, 
She was sent to a pediatric orthopedist who confirmed the therapist's findings of limited right hip flexion and internal rotation and pain with palpation of the anterior inferior iliac spine and pubic symphysis. After a single photo emission computerized tomography scan, the orthopedist diagnosed her with an anterior inferior iliac spine avulsion fracture and pubic symphysis avulsion fracture. This scan also demonstrated increased uptake at the right femoral head and acetabulum. Per physician recommendation, the patient rested for an additional eight weeks and then went to another physical therapist for evaluation. The physical therapist suspected that the patient had femoral acetabular impingement and determined that she was appropriate for physical therapy plan of care. While sometimes we forget as pediatric therapists, we do have to be responsible for orthopedic and sports issues that do arise in children. Femoral acetabular impingement is definitely one of them. Campbell has a whole chapter on orthopedic conditions that is very long and detailed, so we recommend going through this. Let's go over some general physical therapy considerations for this patient. A general physical therapy plan of care and goals include improving hip range of motion, strength, mobility, and flexibility, enhancing core and lower extremity neuromuscular control, and maximizing function and return to sport. Interventions include education to the patient and family on biomechanics and course of physical therapy, manual therapy to the hip and joints related to lower extremity function to improve biomechanics, lower extremity stretching, core and lower extremity stretching, exercises to promote neuromuscular control, functional strength, and proprioception of the lower extremity, gait training, such as walking and running, return to sport interventions, education on prevention of overuse and on fitness maintenance when the patient is appropriate for discharge. Precautions during physical therapy include monitoring for unremitting pain that could indicate progression of body abnormality or systemic disease and avoid impact activities until the patient is able to progress to return to sport activities. Complications during physical therapy include progressing avulsion fractures or development of new stress fractures, acetabular labral pathology, lumbar spine radiculopathy, sacral iliac joint dysfunction, and depression due to psychosocial stress. A big thing to remember in this case is differential diagnosis. Understand and recognize the signs and symptoms of FAI, as well as other hip pathologies. With this patient, she had anterior hip pain and groin pain with all weight-bearing activities. FAI typically presents with localized hip pain that begins as anterior or anterior medial hip slash groin pain with activity. The pain pattern often migrates to a deep hip pain and the patient may grasp around the lateral anterior and posterior femoral head, which is the C sign, and describe the pain as, quote, inside of the hip. Two diagnoses that also need to be considered include a slipped capital femoral epiphysis, a skiffy, and leg calf perth's disease, or LCP. A skiffy is when the proximal femoral epiphysis in the femoral head slips off of the femoral neck, usually in an anterior medial direction. 
It presents with acute or acute on chronic presentation without a history of trauma, and it is common for the child to complain of knee pain. The patient may also present with a loss of hip internal rotation and adduction and excessive external rotation. It is most common in males aged 10 to 16. LCP is associated with avascular necrosis of the femoral head. The typical presentation includes a history of limping or trendelenburg gait and hip pain. Hip internal rotation and abduction are usually limited, and it presents in children 3 to 12 years old. I feel like this is my little time to plug PCS Advantage as well. I think that was probably one of my most used resources from them was their content on orthopedic conditions, which they laid out really, really nice in a in a table, if I'm remembering correctly. But it really helped kind of organize things by symptoms, by age, which I think really helped you with the differential diagnosis piece of things. So let's go over some evidence-based recommendations. Individual clinical diagnostic tests for FAI have higher sensitivity than specificity, but overall have weak diagnostic properties. Ooh, so that does kind of correlate to our Tuesday episode. So this has grade B evidence. For a CAM impingement, mobilizations of the posterior hip capsule may improve hip range of motion by allowing the femoral head to move closer to the neutral axis on the acetabular surface. This has grade C evidence. A functional hop test to determine strength and power development, as well as landing technique and neuromuscular control, can be used to help determine readiness to return to sport for an athlete with FAI. This has grade C evidence. Here are just some clinical pearls from this case specifically. Hip flexion and internal rotation are limited in patients with FAI. Pain is typically reported when performing these active motions. This chapter also talks about hip mobilization. Grade 1 mobilizations unweight supporting surfaces. Grade 2 take up slack in the joint capsule to reduce pain. Grade three to four provide a stretch to ligamentous structures that could improve range of motion. Again, make sure you understand all of the different pathologies of each joint. So if you do get a question asking you to identify which one it could be, you're able to pick the correct answer. Sometimes Sarah and I are here to tell you the hard truth. And if all of this stuff sounds very, very foreign to you, we are here to tell you that you need to know it for the exam. We are sticking with the sports injury theme as we move on to our next case, the anterior cruciate ligament rupture, post-operative management. A nine-year-old skeletally immature male presents to a physical therapy clinic for his first post-operative visit five days after ACL reconstruction due to a left anterior cruciate ligament ACL tear. He injured himself while at a football practice when one of his teammates collided with him, resulting in a knee valgus mechanism injury. At the time, the patient reported hearing a pop noted immediate swelling, and had subsequent episodes of his knee giving way. Prior to injury, the patient was an active child who participated regularly in recreational football and baseball, in addition to regular free play. MRI confirmed the clinical diagnosis of an acute 
mid-substance rupture of the ACL with subchondral bone bruising of the lateral femoral condyle and no concomitant meniscal or articular cartilage damage. We're going to start off with physical therapy considerations for the skeletally immature child after surgical reconstruction of an ACL tear. Again, remember, this child is skeletally immature. Just based on this specific case, that's kind of what we're focusing on here. So again, just going back to what we've said before, make sure that you're paying attention to the case specifically, especially the child's age. General physical therapy plan of care and goals include decreased pain and effusion, increased lower quadrant muscle strength and knee range of motion, and improve functional stability, neuromuscular control, and body mechanics. Physical therapy interventions include patient education regarding functional anatomy and injury pathomechanics, modalities and manual therapy to decrease pain and effusion, muscular flexibility exercises, open kinetic chain and closed kinetic chain progressive resistance exercise to increase muscular strength, activation, and endurance capacity of the lower quadrant, balance and proprioceptive interventions, neuromuscular control and body mechanics interventions, progressive return to impact activities and sport-specific activities with criterion-based progression. Precautions during physical therapy include monitoring all activities to ensure no episodes of knee giving way, address precautions or contraindications for exercise to prevent anterior shear forces at the tibiofemoral joint on the graft, Limit open kinetic chain knee extension in the range of 30 degrees to full knee extension. Consider long-term outcomes for overall joint health, for example, early osteoarthritis, when making decisions regarding activities that are safe for the patient to recreationally participate in if the family decides on non-operative care until skeletal maturation. There is a really nice chart of the similarities and differences between adult ACL repair and skeletally immature ACL repair. So we recommend taking a look at that. Let's go over some evidence-based recommendations. For skeletally immature children, surgical management of anterior cruciate ligament tears is still controversial, but ACL reconstruction may help prevent future meniscus and articular cartilage pathology. This has grade C evidence. Over-the-top or all epiphyseal ACL reconstruction procedures help restore knee stability without violating the growth plate in skeletally immature children. However, only the epiphyseal procedure restores normal anatomy of the knee. This is grade B evidence. Physical therapy rehabilitation programs for ACL reconstruction in skeletally immature individuals may result in increased knee range of motion, neuromuscular control, and muscle strength sufficient to allow returning to sport. This has grade C evidence. Moving on to our last and final case in this episode, case number 31, medial epicondyle apophysitis, otherwise known as little league elbow. The patient is an 11-year-old right-hand dominant male that presented to an outpatient physical therapy clinic with complaints of medial elbow pain. 
The patient began to have pain with repetitive throwing during baseball, in which he participates as a catcher and shortstop. He states the onset of pain was acute and began with one throw and then increased with additional repetitions and increased velocity. At the time of the evaluation, the patient stated he was only able to throw three to five times before the onset of pain, which continued to increase with repetition. Over time, the patient noticed he experienced a decrease in velocity and accuracy as his hip pain increased. Mechanically, he noted the greatest pain occurred during a progression from maximum shoulder external rotation to ball release. He reports that his pain can persist into the next day after throwing in practice or a game. He reports no numbness or tingling in the upper extremity. In an attempt to relieve symptoms, the patient has been using ice and anti-inflammatory medication. Let's start by going over physical therapy considerations. Some general physical therapy plan of care and goals include decreased pain and inflammation, identify current functional status, improve muscle activation patterns, improve strength and endurance of upper extremity and scapular musculature, advance core strength and proximal stability, and improve throwing mechanics. Physical therapy interventions include patient education regarding injury pathomechanics, flexibility exercises to target restricted mobility, resisted exercises to optimize muscle activation, strength and endurance exercises to target identified deficits in the upper extremity, scapular stabilizers, back and core, perturbation training and rhythmic stabilization to improve dynamic stability and control, and modalities to decrease pain and effusion. Precautions during physical therapy include monitoring all exercise to ensure proper technique and mechanics during exercise performance to avoid development of abnormal compensatory patterns during activity or return to throwing program. Complications interfering with physical therapy include the tendency for young growing athletes to return to prior abnormal throwing mechanics despite the need to appropriately adapt to progressing physical maturation and growth. Really, what you want to focus on is this patient is correcting any abnormal muscle activation and movements to ensure that the injury does not happen again. A patient with this injury may report a history of an increase in intensity of repetitive overhead throwing activities. It tends to happen to children who play baseball, such as the child in this case. Onset of pain may be reported as either chronic with a slow progression or more acute with ongoing pain reported after a single throw. The book goes through many exercise examples, return to throwing progressions, and a little league interval throwing program that may be helpful to look at. Let's go over some evidence-based interventions. In adolescent overhead athletes, Long periods of decreased throwing activity may have detrimental effects on upper extremity range of motion. This has grade B evidence. In individuals suspected of having medial epicondyle apophysitis, palpation of the medial elbow anatomy is best completed in a dynamic fashion because tenderness to palpation may vary based on the position of the upper extremity. This has grade C evidence. To reduce stress and loading through the elbow during the throwing motion, early intervention to correct dysfunctional muscle patterns, mechanical faults, and impaired strength and endurance of the posterior shoulder 
scapular stabilizing, and core musculature is recommended. This has grade C evidence. Again, take a look at these cases on your own time and read through the chapters. They have a lot of information in the chapters that are helpful to review. We will talk to you all after the winter holidays. Happy studying and try to take some time for yourself. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.